The Farnham U3A theme for the year 2018-2019 is Africa. Today, Michael Abair talks about the Three Rivers, where he reviews exploration in tropical Africa. We're going to start off with a little experiment. If we can close our eyes a minute and just imagine it's not this hot room, it's not this cold day, we're in the tropics, we're in tropical Africa, sub-equatorial Africa. It's ragingly hot, it's incredibly humid, it rains more often than it doesn't rain. It's really, really heat-bearing down on us all the time. We can hear all the birds singing. There are birds all over the place. At night, it's still hot. We've got shikadas clicking or whatever it is that they do. We've got frogs, endlessly frogs croaking. And that's what we're in. We're not in this cold day. We're in raging heat. Please open them, those who are able. (laughs) It's a story about some very difficult characters let loose in unexplored Africa. One could at best be called Surly. I have to be very careful how I talk about him because one of his relatives is here with me today as my guest, Tony. But he was Surly. Another one was a violent bully, very violent indeed, but both in their different ways had good and sincere intentions. There were others who included a cheat and a couple of much larger-than-life personalities as well. So we've got the ingredients of quite an interesting episode. Now, we all know the story, don't we? Intrepid... You have all opened your eyes, haven't you? (laughs) Intrepid British explorer gets lost in darkest Africa. Another equally intrepid explorer goes off and finds him and then says the immortal words, Dr Livingstone, I presume. Well, there is a little bit more to it than, than that, but... Let's first of all look at this bit in a bit more detail before we look at the hunt for the source of the Nile. In the 1860s, there is little doubt that one of the foremost African explorers was David Livingstone. He was a Scottish missionary born on the 19th of March, 1813, a dogged and generally humorless man with a liking of his own company and someone who did not suffer fools gladly and he preferred not to suffer fools at all. He had by this time been wandering through Africa for almost 20 years. This is in the 1860s, remember. Trying to open the interior of the continent to the light of Christianity. To a small degree, it could be argued that he was successful in this. But it was really his discoveries that made him famous, not his rate of conversions. Now, whilst there may well have been, and I'm sure that there were, other conversions, there's actually only real evidence that he converted one man in all his time in Africa. He seems to have been much more interested in the geography of the lands in which he travelled than the souls of the inhabitants. If there was a river, a lake, a mountain to be found, Livingstone was the man to find it. He also liked it to be known that he was the man who'd found it, because deep down he really, really wanted fame. I suspect that he had a bit of an insecurity problem. And that's why several of his geographical discoveries carry his name. 
It's a strange aspect of such a solitary man, but there we are. He came from a relatively poor Highland family of Protestants, but they were a family with incredibly strong principles. They'd lived in the Highlands for generations. Now, the Livingstons were Protestants, or at least David and his father were. But his grandfather, a Catholic, had died at Culloden, fighting for the Stuarts. Soon after the battle, the laird had come round to the Crofts with a man armed with a big stick to compel the tenants to become Protestants as well. Of course, they'd done as they were commanded. Later, the Livingstons, that's Granny and her children, had moved to the small island of Ulva off the coast of Argyll, uh, quite close to the much more famous island of Iona. When David Livingstone's much-adored father, Neil, grew up, he became a tea dealer near Hamilton, not far from Glasgow. The family's motto was, be honest, be honest, and they always were, frequently to their own detriment. As a young man, David worked in the cotton mills at Blantyre near Glasgow during the winters and spent the summers in his religious studies. He also studied medicine. It's said that he used to rest his books on the spinning jenny machine and read whilst working. Now, I'd always thought that men couldn't multitask, but perhaps that just proves I'm wrong. At this time, his ambition was to become a missionary in China. His medical studies paid off and he became a licentiate of the Faculty of Physicians and Surgeons in 1838, aged 25, and immediately offered his services to the London Missionary Society. At this time, the Opium War was being fought, so his dreams were rapidly switched from China to Africa. His offer was accepted by the Missionary Society, and after a three-month intensive course in theology, he left for Cape Town in South Africa. That's 1840, a voyage of three months. His first destination was Port Natal, where he met his fellow Scot, the Reverend Robert Moffat. He was a man that uh, Livingstone had previously met in London. Soon afterwards, Livingstone married Robert's daughter, Mary. Mary Moffat Livingstone was not a strong lady, but supported him tirelessly on his travels and was always happy to quietly follow her husband wherever he went. The Livingstons next went to Bechuanaland, where they worked for about four years in different mission stations. But they seem to have always had a bit of a problem getting along with the other missionaries. So they had to keep moving from mission station to mission station from time to time. He learned several African languages and dialects so that he could communicate with the people that he met. In June 1849, David Livingstone heard of a legendary Lake Nagami, which was supposed to lie about 500 miles to the north of where they were based, across the Kalahari Desert. Even the local tribesmen, with all their experience of living in or near the desert, had never, ever been there. He and Mary went, and when he found it, he heard of a tribal chief who was supposed to live a further 200 miles to the north, and who supposedly might be interested in converting to his religion. Off they went, and a couple of years later, they found him. Sadly, the chief died almost as soon as the Livingstons got there. I don't think there was a connection. On his travels to find this man, they found the upper stretches of the great Zambezi River, which flows through the Victoria Falls, and all the way to Mozambique and to the east coast of Africa via what we know as Zambia, Angola, Namibia, Botswana, and Zimbabwe. About 1,600 miles in total. Then a couple of years later, he retraced his route, found the great river again, and followed it back to its source. 
a huge area of high-altitude marshland that fed both the Zambezi and the Congo rivers. Now, a little bit of geography. Essentially, the Zambezi flows east and the Congo flows west. If we just keep that in mind, Zambezi east, Congo west. We're not going to go too far wrong on this. Having found this, he marched over a 1,000 miles to the Portuguese port of Luanda, now the capital of, of Angola, on the Atlantic coast of Africa. It's a hot, humid place, just like we thought about before, but neither as hot nor as humid as the central part of the continent. In 1855, his beloved father, Neil, died, sadly, in Scotland. Oblivious to this, David was soon back at his original part of the Zambezi and followed it all the way to the Indian Ocean. On the way, he met a lot of warlike tribes and found a huge and wonderful natural feature that he named Victoria Falls, after, of course, the Queen. He returned to London the following December, we're in 1856 now, having been awarded the prestigious gold medal by the Geographical Society and was greeted as a hero. The president of the Royal Geographical Society announced that Livingston had, and I quote, the greatest triumph in geographical research in our times, unquote. Our hero gave numerous lectures to many learned bodies, generally speaking wearing the peaked cap that was by then his trademark. His journals were sold out almost as soon as they left the printers. He certainly enjoyed the fame, and when his employers, the London Missionary Society, complained that his travels had very little to do with missionary work, Livingston immediately resigned and didn't even try to fight his cause. Next, the British government gave him a job as consul for the east coast of Africa, with a job description saying that he should seek to extend Britain's knowledge of the interior of Africa, thereby advancing both the spread of Christianity and, more importantly to the government, commerce. Livingston had many firm views on the best way to promote trade in Central Africa, particularly by growing cotton there he was convinced that cotton would lead to the progress and education of the African people and to the gradual end of the slave trade. Now, I'm not entirely sure that I agree with him on that one because who was going to do this terrible work of picking and, uh, and maintaining the cotton crop? We only have to look at the southern states of America at this time to see how slave labor can be used for this purpose. This was only just a very few years before the American Civil War. There might have been significant benefits for the Lancashire cotton industry, though. In 1858, after a private audience with Queen Victoria, who at that time was one of his greatest fans, he and his ever-loyal wife Mary were back in Africa, accompanied by his brother, five other Europeans, including the famous artist Thomas Baines. Very soon after they arrived in Africa, their numbers were boosted by the arrival of a bishop. I've not been able to find the bishop's name and five of his priests. The hopes of the bishop and his missionaries were soon dashed when they realized that Livingston was not really interested in converting the population of Africa and only wanted to explore and find geographical features. The feature he was intent on, uh, intent on finding was a great lake, rumored to lie to the north of the Zambezi. Of course, he found it, Lake Nyasa. But on their way to the lake, they were attacked by hostile tribesmen and had to respond with their weapons. He said in his diary, and I'm quoting him, people will not approve of men coming out to convert people and then shooting them. I'm sorry I'm mixed up in it, as they will not care what view of my character is given at home. 
The next thing that went wrong, and very seriously wrong, tragically wrong, was that his beloved and loyal wife Mary Moffat Livingston and the bishop both died of fever, some say malaria, in Chupanga in Mozambique. Probably they died of dysentery. And the disappointed missionaries decided to return home to London. Livingston carried on charting the lake, driving his porters and the few remaining Europeans so hard that one wrote, the doctor daily becomes more incapable of self-control. A catastrophe or tragedy, I fear, is not far off. Another Briton soon died, and two others went home, but Livingston pressed on relentlessly, uncovering evidence of the slave trade still being carried on by the Portuguese. However, reports of his mania were filtering through to London, and some of the expedition members were getting restless. They reported that Livingston was an inept leader of a large expedition, that he was moody, self-righteous, and unable to accept any form of criticism. Thomas Baines, the artist, was dismissed for allegedly stealing, something he very strongly denied. All was not well on this trip. Then in 1863, Livingston received a letter commanding him to return home. I'm fascinated how this letter found him. Presumably it was addressed Dr. D. Livingston, interior of Africa. (laughs) But... I'm fascinated how that happened, but there's nothing to tell me that. Anyway, he did return in 1864, this time to a cooler reception. It was noted that he'd overstepped the mark and that he'd done little to promote British interests and, if anything, left the region less stable than he'd found it. It didn't go down very well with Queen Victoria that he was so critical of Portugal's involvement in the slave trade. She and Prince Albert were both cousins of the Portuguese King Pedro. He was only in Britain for a short time before returning to his beloved Africa, this time to once and for all find the true source of the Nile, leaving London just after Christmas 1865. He was relatively soon in equatorial Africa, under the auspices of the Geographical Society, and also of what we nowadays know as the Foreign Office. For about six years, there was little news of Livingston, but it turned out that he'd been very seriously ill with pneumonia, and the early stages of cholera for, four of, for at least four of those missing years. His supplies ran out, and he had to beg for food. At one time, he was put in a fenced-off area by some slave traders that he'd, he'd begged food from and was made to eat in front of people for their entertainment. He also saw the massacre of over 400 Africans by slave traders. Now we need to take a look at H.M. Stanley, Henry Morton Stanley an interesting man. He was born on the 28th of January, 1841, the illegitimate son of an 18-year-old Welsh girl, Elizabeth Parry from Denby. His actual name was not Henry Morton Stanley, but John Rowlands. Uh, Rowlands was believed to be the name of, of his father. He was brought up by his maternal grandfather, a once prosperous butcher who'd somehow hit hard times. Then when his grandfather died, he went into the St. Asaph workhouse at the age of five. He was definitely badly bullied there and was almost certainly sexually abused by the workhouse master. He was certainly a troubled and unhappy boy and with very good reason. When he left the workhouse aged 15, he worked as a shop assistant, supposedly a teacher, but I think more correctly a teaching assistant, an errand boy, and then he ran away to sea. He jumped ship in America, 
He served on both sides in the American Civil War before joining the American Navy, from which he deserted to become a journalist. At some point, he met a merchant by the name of Henry Stanley in New Orleans. He was a kind man, and I think probably the first man who'd been nice to Stanley. Stanley took his name, Henry Morton. A kind man, yeah. Stanley's reporting of the war in Abyssinia drew him to the attention of his employer, James Gordon Bennett, Jr. Uh, He was the editor and proprietor of the New York Herald. He was the most astute newspaperman of the age. Young Stanley was clearly a misfit and socially insecure, but he was undeniably tough. By this time, he was 27 years old, and Bennett felt that he might be just the person to find the missing Dr. Livingston in darkest Africa. Bennett knew that this would be the biggest newspaper story of the year and probably the decade. And of course, the story would sell lots more newspapers. So he decided to make it happen. He allowed Stanley to spend as much money as it took, but just to find the great explorer. Rumors had been circulating that Livingston had died of fever, been murdered by slave traders, that he was still alive and needing rescue, and many other stories. Stanley was instructed to find him and return only when he'd done so. Stanley arrived in Zanzibar on the 7th of January, 1871, and set about organizing a fully equipped expedition. He took shotguns, rifles, pistols, lots of ammunition. He also took some food, tents, medicines, goods to trade, and two riverboats. Total weight of the luggage was six tons. He hired 157 porters and 20 armed guards under a man called Bombay, who'd traveled with Speak and Burton in their earliest somewhat ill-fated search for the source of the Nile. Now, we're going to hear a bit more about them shortly. There were also interpreters, assistants, and hangers-on, so that by the time they left for the interior on the 6th of February, the party comprised about 200 men. Stanley's plan was to head, nobody knows quite why, for the small town of Ujiji on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. The journey took nine months, and they encountered, encountered rains, floods disease, obstructive tribesmen, the lot. His porters deserted in dribs and drabs. His white assistants died of fever. He spent weeks in a feverish coma, but Stanley was not going to let any of that stop him. He was ruthless with anyone who stood in his way, and whippings were commonplace. When deserters were caught, they were whipped horribly before being chained with iron hoops around their necks and still having to carry the heavy loads. He he wasn't prepared to waste any time trying to barter for food or other necessities. He just took them, plundering villages wherever he went. Eventually, in the first week of November 1871, he heard from his scouts about an old white man living in Ujiji, the very village that he'd set out for all those months and miles before. This man could only be Livingston. He wrote, he, Stanley, that is, wrote in his diary... The sublime hour has arrived. He dressed himself in his very best clothes, highly polished shoes, white flannels, and freshly chalked pith helmet, and marched at the head of his column of men who were firing their guns in salute. The locals thought they were under attack, and it was only when they saw the immaculately dressed and heavily moustached Stanley that they realized they were not. In the main square, if you can call it a main square, Stanley saw the old man walking slowly towards him, dressed in tweed trousers, 
Imagine this in this, in this heat. <laughs> Tweed trousers, a red waistcoat, and of course a blue cap with a gold band. Stanley, who we've already discovered was frankly socially inept, just stuck his hand out and said the only thing he could think of. Uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Livingston quietly smiled. Of course, he was not much more um, socially capable than, than Stanley. <laughs> quietly smiled, raised his cap slightly, and replied, yes. Now, reports vary about what happened next. Some, including Stanley's diary, say that Livingston was overjoyed and said, you have brought me new life. Several pages, though, were torn out of his diary, and we have no way of knowing what was, a, what was on those missing pages. Others present say that Livingston was contemptuous and insistent that he had not needed rescue at all. We don't know the real answer, but we do know that Livingston gave Stanley a good meal, the first he'd enjoyed for a long time. Livingston certainly was not impressed that his saviour had been the New York Herald, an American newspaper, but the two men clearly got on well. Stanley hero-worshipped Livingston, and the doctor was very impressed when his new friend offered to help him explore the shores of, of Lake Tanganyika. Off they went together in a canoe and managed to prove that this was not the source of the Nile. Immediately after Christmas, the two parted, Livingston to get more supplies and Stanley to return to America via Zanzibar to file his story. He was clearly desperate to get his report into the newspaper and pushed his men exhaustively and cruelly to get back quickly. Stanley really enjoyed the praise showered on him and became as much a hero of the time as Livingston. But the Royal Geographical Society was very sneering that a mere American, despite the fact that he'd been born in Wales, of course, that a mere American had found an intrepid British explorer, wasn't playing by the rules of cricket at all. Livingston continued to look for the source of the Nile in what turned out to be his last expedition. He crossed Lake Tanganyika, climbed a range of hills, and then, weakened by dysentery, began to falter. On the 22nd of April, 1873, he could no longer walk and had to be carried in a litter. He wrote in his diary, I encourage myself in the Lord my God and go forward. Sadly, he didn't go much further forward because just eight days later, and only three days from the Lualaba River, the biggest tributary of the Congo, he knelt down at night to pray by his bedside and was in the same position the next morning when his men found him dead. Apparently, he died of internal bleeding caused by dysentery and malaria. Poor chap. He was just 60 years old. They buried his heart there and left his body to dry for two weeks in the sun, then wrapped it in canvas and bark, put it between two poles, and started the long trek back to the coast. Almost a year after his death, Dr. Livingston was given a state funeral at Westminster Abbey. The principal pallbearer was Stanley, who swore he would continue the great man's work. Livingston's main regret in his life, apparently, was that he'd not spent more time with his six children. <laughs> a few months later, in August 1874, backed not only this time by the New York Herald, but also by Britain's Daily Telegraph, Stanley sailed for Zanzibar again. Now, this expedition was even bigger and much more expensive than his previous one. This time, he had around 350 porters, 
had staff, armed men, and so on. Sadly, the same pattern emerged as several died on the journey, including two of the three Europeans. There were many desertions as he pushed his men far too hard, and these were followed by floggings. Again, they traded nothing, just took anything and everything they wanted, killing anyone who stood in their way. After, wait for this, 103 days, they had covered about 720 miles. Now, imagine that's not walking across the South Downs. We're talking through primary rainforest here, through jungle. After 103 days, 720 miles. A standard expedition would have covered it in about nine months to a year, three or four times as long. This was achieved at a human cost, though. It wrecked Stanley's health and killed very many of his men. Part of the baggage train included a boat in five sections, the Lady Alice, which was used to explore various large lakes and also the River Lualaba, which we said previously was a tributary of the Congo. Stanley anticipated trouble from tribesmen, and he bought the support of a prominent Arab slave trader he met on on the way and his small army, which boosted the expedition to rather over 1,000 men, mostly heavily armed. They proceeded downstream in the Lady Alice, together with a large flotilla of 50-foot-long, hollowed-out tree-trunk canoes. They were thinking they were heading for the Nile, but in fact, they were heading for the Congo, which runs, as we said, westwards, roughly. Of course, we know that the Nile runs roughly northwards. The mighty Congo River is incredible. It's almost 3,000 miles long and is the world's deepest river with measured depths in places of over 720 feet. It's been the home of the Bantu people for thousands of years and has the unique distinction of being the only river in the world to cross the equator twice. Now, there's something you can take home (laughs) and amaze people with. (laughs) Nowadays, the river is used to generate a lot of hydroelectricity. When a lot later, Stanley eventually realized he was still heading westwards, He'd gone far too far to turn back and decided there and then to follow this great river all the way to the sea. This swiftly led to a lot more of his men running away, including most of the army he'd just hired. Well, they went downstream in extremely hot and humid conditions through territory no white man anyway had ever seen, mostly thick rainforest, with hostile tribesmen attacking them almost constantly with poisoned darts from the riverbanks, or from canoes. These attacks continued pretty well constantly for something over a thousand miles. Stanley's armed men kept shooting and killing, but gradually the attacks and diseases took their toll on his remaining men. On the 6th of January 1877, that's a little over two years after leaving Zanzibar, they met the first of what turned out to uh, to be one of seven great cataracts, or rapids, These cataracts were interspersed by very difficult white water for over 50 miles. Still the attacks continued while the boat and its convoy of heavy canoes were hauled out of the river and portaged over rollers to the next bit of navigable water. All this in the heat and humidity of the tropical rainforest, the jungle. As you will no doubt imagine, numerous men died on this part of the trip. It took a month to get past these cataracts, which Stanley named after himself predictably. And on the 7th of February, they had a very, very rare day in which they didn't kill anybody. 
This was the moment when Stanley finally had to accept that this was not the River Nile after all, because it just would not turn northwards. So he named this new river the Livingston. Well, it was actually the Congo. As they continued downstream, the attacks got worse rather than better, and Stanley found what, what he was sure were the signs of cannibalism in deserted villages. Gradually, the attacks started to be with muskets rather than spears and arrows. That was a sign that European traders must be within reach. Unfortunately for Stanley, it also meant that he didn't have total weapon superiority. By mid-March, after fighting 32 major battles, as well as hundreds of skirmishes, they arrived at a, at a pool some 17 miles long and 15 miles wide, which of course he named Stanley Pool. Later the site of the towns of Stanleyville on one side and Brazzaville on the other. They'd followed the Congo River for almost 1,250 miles in only 128 days. But his men had been reduced to less than 150 from the original 350. Stanley was very proud of the fact that he'd destroyed 28 large towns and about 45 villages. It's impossible to guess how many Africans he'd killed, how many thousands, or more likely tens of thousands. Stanley Pool led to a chain of 32 cataracts, gorges, waterfalls, the lot, even worse than the so-called Stanley Falls that they'd already negotiated. These continued for 155 miles before widening out at the town of Boma into a placid and navigable waterway. In each of these places, the boat and the canoes had to be portaged, usually through untamed rainforest, usually in temperatures of considerably over 30 degrees Celsius. For eight months of the year, there's very heavy rainfall as well, creating exceptionally high humidity. In these cataracts, Stanley's last surviving European companion, a name called Pocock, drowned when his canoe overturned. By mid-July, 12 canoes and another 13 men had disappeared into the Congo, together with most of the supplies and weapons. One of Stanley's most dependable men, an African named Safini, went completely mad and wandered off naked into the jungle with a parrot on a stick and nothing else. <laughs> uh, they never found him, nor the parrot. With just four more cataracts to negotiate to get to the coast, Stanley abandoned the last canoes, the Lady Alice and most of his remaining supplies. They had food for just three of the six days it took them, but they struggled on. On the 17th of October, 1877, exactly 1,000 days after leaving Zanzibar, the survivors struggled into Boma. There they were able to get transport on a steamboat to the mouth of the Congo, from where Stanley was able to send cables to New York, to the Herald, and to the Daily Telegraph announcing that they were the first people to cross the continent from east to west. He also told the world about the great river Congo that would be a great highway of commerce to the center of Africa, totally ignoring the practicalities of negotiating the cataracts, of course. Now, these words were going to come back to haunt him a little bit later and us very shortly. After eight days' rest, Stanley and his surviving men were taken on a Portuguese gunboat to Luanda, were somewhat out of character, perhaps. I find this amazing. Stanley refused the opportunity to go straight back to Europe, but instead insisted on accompanying his men back to Zanzibar. He said, and I quote, it would be dereliction of my duty to leave them. 
At least two-thirds of his remaining men were sick by this time, mostly dropsy or dysentery. They also all suffered from a terrible lethargy, sleeping sickness or perhaps depression, which made it impossible for them to get on with things. I suspect this may well have been partly connected with the, the number of their friends from the original party who'd not made it that far. When they arrived in Zanzibar, there were only 88 men, together with 13 women. Now, where they came from, don't ask me. But there were also six children who'd all been born on the journey. Every one of them just disappeared into obscurity, leaving Stanley to collect all the accolades and honours. He was in his mid-thirties, but he looked at least 20 years older. The only part of him that was recognisable was his splendid black bushy moustache. In August 1879... Just about 18 months later, Stanley was back at the mouth of the Congo. Now, this is the bit where I said that it was going to come back to haunt him. King Leopold II of Belgium had heard his earlier comments about the Congo being an ideal route to the center of Africa for commerce. And he was particularly interested in rubber, which in that climate would be perfect for growing and, and producing. Rubber was then a boom commodity. Britain had decided by that stage that it was not interested in expanding its empire into the central and equatorial African regions. The king employed Danley to further explore the Congo Basin and to claim the region for Belgium before a rival explorer, de Brazza, did so for France. Actually, the small print on the contract stipulated that the land would become the personal property of the king rather than of Belgium, but Stanley was assured of Leopold's good intentions. He also promised Stanley a high position and financial rewards in the new colony. This makes me think of that, that old saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. As before, Stanley drove his men with such ferocity that he became known as the Breaker of Stones, or Bulamatari. Now, it's unclear whether this reflected to him breaking the stones for the new, new road alongside the Congo with his men, or of his way of trying to get the men to work harder. I suspect the latter. The Congo Free State that Stanley largely built soon became a byword for oppression and cruelty. Leopold's men used any means to ensure the quotas that they set were met. Men were frequently threatened with amputations, uh, and indeed many of them did take place, if they didn't meet their targets. Of course, King Leopold reneged on his agreement and just gave Stanley a modest consultancy fee and a worthless medal. But then we all knew that was going to happen, didn't we? Eight years later, in 1887, Stanley was back in the Congo, this time leading an armed force across the whole of Africa to rescue Emin Pasha. He was the governor of the Egyptian province of Equatoria. He's a man well worth a talk on his own. Fascinating man. He was born a German Jew in what is nowadays Poland with the name of Isaac Edward Schnitzer. He became a physician, an explorer, and a naturalist. Now, Please, please, don't ask me how or why Stanley couldn't just land troops just down the coast. I mean, maybe 20, 30 miles down the coast, somewhere nearby. And just who decided that it was a good idea to march them 2,000 miles through some of the most dreadful terrain on the planet? I, I just honestly don't know the answer. Anyway, they made it, and in typical Stanley style, the rescue was rather cruel and bloodthirsty. We don't need to go into that here. Soon after the rescue, Emin Pasha stepped from an upstairs room out onto a balcony. Well, he thought it was a balcony, but it was actually a window. He fell to the ground, 
was very badly injured and spent a couple of months recovering, nursed partly by Stanley. Amin Pasha then died not long afterwards when two Arab slave traders murdered him. Stanley returned to London, having traversed the continent again, this time from west to east. It was to be Henry Morton Stanley's last trip to Africa. He married, we understand rather unhappily, a Welsh artist by the name of Dorothy Tennant. That was in 1890, and they adopted one child, a daughter, I think. He, Stanley, became the Liberal Unionist MP for Lambeth for one five-year term, but this does seem to have got in the way of his world tour, a lecture tour. He was knighted in 1899, had a severe stroke in 1903, and died of pleurisy on the 19th of May, 1904, aged 63. On his deathbed, he asked his wife where she thought he should be buried. She replied, Westminster Abbey, of course. (laughs) He seemed very pleased with this answer. Yes, they will put me beside Livingstone. They never did bury him in Westminster Abbey, and instead his cremated ashes were put in the churchyard at Purbright here in Surrey, where he lived. On the face of it, Livingstone and Stanley were complete opposites, but the similarity was clear. They were both driven men, men with a clear aim in life. Livingstone, the surly Scot who loved his own quiet company, and Stanley, the insecure, bullying, totally ruthless man who killed for the sake of his own ambition. Sir Richard Francis Burton, the famous explorer, said of Stanley, he shoots Africans as if they were monkeys. As I mentioned earlier, we'll now have a look at the race to find the source of the River Nile, starting with Burton, he of the monkeys, and John Speke. They were driven by the dream of discovering the source of the Nile. Back in the 1840s, three German missionaries, Erhard Krapf, and Rebman had thought the source of the world's longest river was the great lake that Livingstone had explored at Ujiji, Lake Tanganyika. As we've heard, Livingstone and Stanley later disproved this. Back in 1857, Burton had been on the case. He was a tall, broad-shouldered, scar-faced, and extremely aggressive man who'd been sent to Oxford at the age of 19 with the intention that he would become a clergyman. I think his chances of becoming a clergyman were rather remote, to say the least. He didn't stay long at Oxford and went to India and then to the Middle East. Here he discovered his incredible talent for learning languages. He spoke 29 during his lifetime. He also became the world expert on the sexual practices of the Orient. It's all in the books. (laughs) He prided himself on looking like Satan. And in certain lights, it could be argued that he did. Now, I imagine you're beginning to agree with me that it's a bit unlikely that he would have made a go of it as a, as a vicar. In 1856, he was 35, and by this time, he was determined to discover the source of the Nile. Against his wishes, his sponsors, various learned bodies and government departments, had decided that the glory attached to this could not be his alone, and sent out another Briton, John Hanning Speak, who was 10 years younger than Burton. He was a well-spoken and widely traveled army officer who was a very keen big game hunter. He was strong, but a bit excitable and rather naive to say the least. He had accompanied Burton on a previous trip to Somalia and it's fair to say that the older man didn't like him much. It's also fair to say that the younger man didn't like him either. It was pretty mutual. 
They landed at Zanzibar on the 20th of December, 1856. That's just about the same time as Livingstone's wife had died, Mary Moffat Livingstone. They set about equipping a major expedition and within six months had a caravan of 130 men and 30 pack animals. It took so long because every time they tried to get things going, Speak would go off on another big game hunt for several weeks. Their essential goods included brandy, camp beds, rifles, bullets, moulds to make more ammunition, umbrellas, tables, chairs, as well as trade goods, and probably more brandy. Not exactly travelling light, is it? Burton didn't much like the Africans they met on their journey. He referred to them in his journal as a futile race of barbarians and as drunken and disruptive. Despite his comments, he seemed glad to have their knowledge of the geography of the, of the land west of Zanzibar. Burton was convinced that the Lake of Ujiji, Lake Tanganyika, or more correctly, the two connected lakes there, would prove to be the source of the Nile. This is all 12 or 13 years before Livingston disproved this theory. Predictably, Burton and Speke were starting to irritate each other. Speke was envious that his colleague could speak to the men in their various languages whilst Burton got fed up having to wait around while Speak went off hunting, wherever and whenever he fancied. When he put his foot down and stopped Speak going off hunting, the younger man got surly and made it clear that he didn't like Burton's overbearing manner. They were both ill with fevers, and Burton had severe bouts of malaria. He lost the use of his legs for a while and had to be carried in a hammock. Speak got an eye infection that all but blinded him. They eventually staggered into Ujiji, where Stanley was to meet Livingston 13 years later, in February 1858. Speke went off to, to try to explore Lake Tanganyika and returned four weeks later with a badly infected ear. He had tried to extricate a parasite with his penknife. Off they went, together this time, in a couple of leaky dugout canoes with Union Jacks fluttering in the breeze. Burton was pleased when he was told there was indeed a river between the two lakes, but he was rather less pleased when he discovered that it flowed the wrong way and couldn't possibly be part of the Nile. By now, their supplies were running out, so they were forced to return to Mombasa. Halfway there, Burton became very ill again, and Speak decided to take a side trip to do a bit of hunting. It was on this trip that Speak stumbled across Lake Victoria Nyanza, nowadays usually known as Lake Victoria. He rushed back to tell Burton, who feigned total indifference and refused to go to look at the lake. They continued onwards, each having to nurse the other and managed to get on a ship home. Burton's malaria was so bad that he had to stop his journey in Aden to recover. I wouldn't think that Aden is a place to stop and recover from anything. Speak's parting words were, You may be quite sure that I shall not go up to the Royal Geographical Society until you come to the fore and we appear together. Make your mind quite easy on that. When Burton eventually got to London in May 1859, he found that Speke had not only discussed it with the Royal Geographical Society, but had obtained funding from them for another expedition to be led by him, Speke. His companion would be a tall Scottish ex-Indian army officer from Nairn in the Highlands, named James Augustus Grant. He was another one who was the son of a minister of the church. Grant also liked a bit of shooting, but most important of all... He was keen not to take the lead. He would do as he was told. Now, I find that rather odd because it's a strange facet to a man who would later become a very high-ranking and 
an immensely decorated army officer, but there you are. Burton published his papers saying that Speke was unsuited for anything except a subordinate capacity. It caused great concern, but, but by the time it was published, Speke and Grant were in East Africa, and Burton, together with his wife, were exploring West Africa. Speke and Grant marched to Lake Victoria Nyanza, but Grant had an infected leg wound, and so Speke left him there with instructions to meet the later at a place called Banyoro. Clearly, Speke didn't want anyone else getting in on the glory of discovering the source of the Great Nile. While Grant was making his way there, Speke discovered a magnificent stream dotted with islets and rocks. The expedition, Speke wrote, had now performed its functions, or had it. When Grant met up with Speke, he told him about another great lake that he'd stumbled across that bisected a great river. If this river connected to the Nile, as Speke suggested, it could be another source of the great river. Maybe the source that Speke had found was not the main one at all. Just possibly Burton had been right all along, and Lake Victoria Nyanza, Lake Victoria as we know it, was not the main source. Speke predictably chose to ignore this possibility. He'd arranged to meet a Welshman, John Petherick, at Gondokoro in Sudan. He was a trader with a rather grand title of Consul to the East Central Africa. But when he and Grant got there, John Petherick had got bored with waiting and had gone off on safari. He'd waited there in a small, hot, dusty town patiently for two years, but Speke called him a, a backslider, a deserter, and probably a slave trader. Of course, he, Speke, would never have dreamt of going off big game hunting. <laughs> and that is all we will hear of Grant today, except that he ended up a lieutenant colonel in the army with a CB, CSI, FRS, FRGS after his name, and was buried in the crypt of St. Paul's Cathedral, when he died much later, aged 64. However, Speke met another English traveller, a man named Sam Baker there. Baker was very much like Speke, but more so in every way. I have seen him described as being like Speke with added caffeine. He was a big, loud, dedicated big game hunter from a wealthy family, with a voice that could rattle window panes, if any had existed in that part of Africa in those days. He had a master's degree in civil engineering. He was an author, an army officer. He learned Arabic, was a good personal friend of Edward VII when he was Prince of Wales. In fact, Edward and Queen Alexandra visited Baker and stayed with him in Egypt. He'd fought a bit, he'd farmed a bit. He'd been in the Balkans where he'd bought a Hungarian teenage slave girl called Florence, who would eventually become his wife, but at this time was just his slave and constant companion. Baker heard about Speke's expedition, and he wanted a bit of the action, which was how they happened to be in Gondokoro. Baker was devastated to hear from Speke that the Nile's source was found, so he struck off south together with his tough girlfriend, enough guns for a small army, and a tin chest containing a Union Jack, his full Highland regalia, and a satin jacket that he wore for dinner every night. God, and my wife thinks I'm eccentric. <laughs> they were fording a river one day, Baker in front, of course, when he looked back and saw Florence sinking into the mud and weeds with her face turned purple. He had no idea what sort of seizure she'd suffered, so he instantly ordered his men to dig her a grave. No sooner had they started than Florence recovered. <laughs> now, I don't know what she said to him, but I, <laughs> but I think every man in this room knows what his wife would say. <laughs> 
On the 14th of March, 1864, the Bakers saw a great lake, which they named Lake Albert, Lake Albert Nianza, these days just known as Lake Albert, after Prince Albert, who'd recently died. They sailed round the shore until they found the place where the river emptied into the Nile. By May 1865, the Bakers were back at Khartoum after a dreadful journey in a dhow full of plague victims. There, amongst the mail waiting for him, was a French translation of Speak's book, The Discovery of the Source of the Nile. He was never able to give Speak the news himself, because at the end of the book, it told the reader that Speak had died. Speak had, in fact, returned to London, had made a complete fool of himself. He'd slandered Petherick, questioned the competence of the Royal Geographical Society, accused Burton of being an ignoramus, he also put in his book a lot of factually incorrect information. Now, anyone who knew anything would know that, according to the book, the Nile must have been flowing uphill for at least 90 miles. <laughs> Speak was feeling less sure of himself, and then Burton came home. Ah. They agreed to debate their findings in public in Bath on the 6th of September, 1864, and the adjudicator was to be none other than Dr. David Livingstone. But only Burton appeared on stage. Eventually, a message was delivered that whilst out shooting partridges the previous day, Speak had had an accident on his cousin's estate, that's Neston Park, and had shot himself. The official verdict was accidental death, but nobody ever really will know the truth, but it's pretty obvious that it wasn't an accident, that he obviously decided that that was the better way out. When Livingstone and Stanley discovered that the true source of the Nile was Lake Victoria Nyanza, Burton admitted that he knew he was wrong all along. Speak's monument is a Cleopatra-type needle in London's Kensington Gardens. Burton's was the burning by his wife of a manuscript of his final book, which she judged to be far too risque for publication. Sam Baker, later Sir Samuel White Baker, KCB, FRS, FRGS, died in December 1895, aged 72, of a heart attack at his Newton Abbott estate in Devon. His wife, Florence, Lady Baker, survived him by 23 years and also died on the estate. And that is how the source, or the sources, of the three great rivers of equatorial Africa were discovered. <laughs> This talk took place in the Farnham Maltings on Thursday the 22nd of November 2018. This podcast is produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.